Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Uh, well, here we are again, Gary. Yes, yeah, still in still in lockdown here, but uh, enjoying the fact that I get to see you um, on this screen every week. And, yeah, um, it's, like, it's, it's, it's like visiting time, isn't it? In prison. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> anyway, t- today's... I'm, I'm, I'm a bit wary that I might end up sort of like fitting in on some of the anecdotes here too much guy I don't want well, to yes, boss it no, too much you are much. very much part of this story. although this is a man whose, whose story I've known right since right at the very beginning for some reason for some reason even though he was in a teeny bopper band they were on my radar because there was always something indefinable about this guy that I found interesting so and he's been he's been in so many bands hasn't he I mean, not only has he had hits with various bands I mean it's fantastic it's just someone who's kind of always there you know he's he managed to always a real right place right time sort of guy not to dismiss his you know own no but I mean you know number ones with with one band and a, a brilliant number two with 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 another band number one as a solo artist and also went on to create a number one that is probably one of the most famous records ever made and i think the second biggest selling single of all time god we're in his shadow should we get him on do we want to do we want to talk to him (laughs) Uh, not really anymore no uh come on then welcome to the rock on tours Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. (laughs) It's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. You and I met for the first time and um, unless this is a desperate false memory uh, and I can give you the exact date so August the 24th 1989 uh, which is at the after show party at the Universal Amphitheatre when the Who did Tommy. Bloody hell yes Uh, yes I was there yeah (laughs) no no well done you Uh, yeah Yeah. that's that's amazing yeah yeah and you both remember it 
I, I, I remember it. I, I remember it as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I remember we had a very, very lively chat about basically about Pete and how we were amazed he didn't fall over with all his skipping. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Guy, have you ever played with Midge? I mean, I haven't. musically, obviously. I, I don't, I, um, not that I'm aware of. I probably should have checked because you never know. I don't think we have. I don't no. think we have. You know, it's, it's it, it, you know, when you, when you get to this ripe old age, you do kind of forget who's been in the bands that you've done various, you know, charity events with, you know, so. But I don't think we have. No, I don't know. Unfortunately, which I'm, I must say is a, is a box I, I would love to tick. Before we end up in the final box. <laughs> <laughs> Because now I can say that, Midge, you and I, of course, have played on stage, I, th I think a total of three or four times, maybe uh, three at least, twice with Rich Kids and, uh, and once, uh, I think it was once at the Prince's Trust, unless we did two nights on that stint. Uh, no, I think it was just a one night at the Prince's Trust, but we also did a thing. We did an acoustic thing where we were, I don't, I'm not sure we were on the stage at the same time. I honestly can't remember. Some weird thing up in Manchester. But we could save those highlights of your career and talk about them later, you know, in more of depth. Course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and really, what, you, what, what have you been up to in this, in this weirdest of all times? Oh, it's been weird. I mean, I, I, I was in... Um, I was in Australia. No, I was in New Zealand when we heard about the virus back in uh, the beginning of last year, uh, so February last year. And by the time we left New Zealand to go to Australia to carry the tour on, um, the day we landed in Australia, New Zealand had closed its doors. And that was, that was the beginning of March. So they've been isolated and doing the right thing since then. And my big worry was not just getting around Australia because it did feel like the last band standing, you know, where as we as we progressed our way across from the East Coast to the West Coast um, before flying home, uh, the, the numbers were getting smaller and smaller and smaller, partly because the rules were changing and uh, audiences, crowds you know, gathering together got smaller. But also, uh, quite understandably, people who had bought tickets were were so scared to go they just they, they, they chose not to so it, by the time we got to Perth before we got on the flight home uh the day we landed in Perth it was all down to like 100 people in an audience and stuff and we just, oh. just it was all over so the main priority was getting back really and making sure the family was all you know gathered from the four corners of the earth and and back home and and safe and sound I mean, the pandemic was the greatest excuse that ever happened to our career, wasn't it, really? So, so one time I've learned, that, you know, because normally, normally when people ask you to do things, you kind of go, I really don't want to do it. But you end up going, yeah, okay, yeah, it's fine, that's fine, I'll do that. But now you can actually say, no, I can't, you know, and, and get away with it because we physically can't do anything. Yeah, so I've been here. To, love to, but yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been here. I've been here. But so you're all rebooked, aren't you? Mitch, you have your tour already booked now, don't I you? I have. It's, you know, like everyone, you know, came back and uh, anything that was, you know, in the diary for, you know, the, the rest of whatever year it was now, it's all blurred into one great big mess. Um, so it must have been the year 2000, uh, 2020. Anything that was in there has gone, you know, so it was moved and slipped back and... Uh, or no, was it 2019? Actually, it was 2019. So anything that was in 2019, all the summer festivals, all the, the tour that was meant to follow on the tour that I just completed uh, was supposed to be happening at the end of that year. Then it went back to 2020, and now it's back to 2021. And even then, you kind of have to doubt your sanity. Is is that really going to happen? But people need something to, you know, to look aim forward at. to, you know, to, to, to aim for, you know. 
But you, you've been brilliant, though, because you've done this whole club thing, haven't you, where you, you've sort of, you know, you've managed to find this way of, should we say, monetizing your career, which we all need to and we should be thinking about, you know, how, how do we, how do we, you know, it's, it can't all be for free, can it, Mitch? Well, it can't. There's something about, and it's it's not the Scot in me, believe me. Um, it's there's something about uh, this whole uh, process of just giving things away because all it does is, yeah, it's nice. It's good to do things, you know, charity stuff or whatever for free. We're always the first in line to step up and do stuff for other people. But there's something about maybe since uh, since people started ripping music off uh, and sticking it on the internet and you know creating MP3s and whatever, um, you, you kind of think, okay, all it does is diminish the quality of what it is, not the quality of the the piece of music, but the longevity of it and the you know the, the statement that it makes because it's all free and it's weird because we've now got an entire generation who's grown up. Who don't know that you're meant to buy music? They just they just go to their computer and, and, and download and whatever they want to hear. Fault. It's no, not it's not there. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. But it's, I remember, no, but it's also hard. I think it must, you know, eventually go into the making of music, where the amount of effort you put into something, where you know that people can just listen to it or not listen to it or take it or leave it. You know, but, but gonna, it's fine. It's fine. The concept is pretty good. That you think, oh, you make music and it doesn't cost a lot. It doesn't cost what it used to make you know, an album, you know, back in the days when you had to go cap and hand to your record label and get yourself, you know, £100,000 to go off and make an album because that's what they cost. Uh, and you had to recoup all of that stuff and get paid back for it. Uh, I think these days now, yes, you can make records a bit cheaper, but it still costs money and time and effort and the, the 40 years of skill that you've kind of accrued or, or, you know, over all this time to enable you to do it. And it would be nice to see something back for it. So, yeah, I do have a, a bit of a problem about just giving things away simply because I think it becomes less important. Uh, so when I when I when I got back from uh, Australia and, and New Zealand and I realized that this this lockdown might go on for a lot longer than the three or four months that everyone was talking about, I I figured out how to do this. And I've got this little multicam setup here. He's there. He's here. I've got I've got yeah I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> it's the Queen song. Now I'm here. Now I'm there. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, you can't see the. Beauty. Where are you? You look like you're a Presbyterian chapel or something. I, I'm in my little. This is my little man cave. This is my little studio, and uh, it's, it's all gone a bit weird because I've had to kind of line it. See this this kind of black and white stuff here. It feels like I'm inside a Dalmatian or something. It's, it's only just it's only just happened. I'm trying to keep some of the noise from outside from getting in because I'm I've got an open mic on all the time, and normally. You know, when you've got a mic open, I can choose my times to do it. But I've been hosting a radio show and I have to go in here and record these very intimate, quiet, spoken voices. And I can hear every bird, every cockerel, every builder, you know, everyone coughing down the road. So, yeah, I'm in my little man cave. This is my toy, my toy cupboard. Open mic are the most frightening two words ever put together, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> certainly are. Luckily, luckily, ninety percent of what we do is sitting twiddling keyboards or playing guitars or what. It's all DI'd. It's not a big thing. It's not. In no great shakes having uh, you know having noise in the background. But when you've got this thing, you've got this open mic sitting there waiting for every cough and splutter and picking up every bird tweeting in a tree. It's a bit of a bit of a drawback. Now, can we? Um, is this a good time to? To sort of have the shimmering and go back to the beginning. Of course, are we doing? Is it, is it a pure? Uh, is it a pure? Um, 
one of those things. <laughs> yeah, and suddenly you've got a wig with long hair and a, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're catching a ball in the Goebbels, you know. Yeah, we opened the shower and you're in there, and it was all a dream. You grew up in in, in Scotland, and I, I re- and I just read the other day, you know, just w- in a little one bedroom house with all your family. I mean, I can't even beat that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, you couldn't make mine up, really. It was a it was a a tenement slum flat, a one bedroom flat. Um, and, and I seem to remember that the, the communal areas of this, this tenement close uh, had, had gas mantles lighting it. That's how, that's how long ago it was, Gary. Oh, um, so it was, pretty, it was pretty rough and ready. But, you know, uh, I think in hindsight, you look at it and you think, OK, well, it was pretty rough. But when you're there in the middle of it all, everybody else I knew was living in the same conditions. So it was no hardship. It was just what it, how to, what it was, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. What was the music you were into? What was the first thing that got really got your ear? I the first thing I'm going to claim was the first thing that I ever heard because back then uh, we we had no record player or anything, so it was a radio. My my mother listened to the radio all the time while she was doing the housework, and uh, and it was the light program or the home program, whatever it was. It was like the, the BBC had one channel, yeah. and they played everything. So you'd get Mantovani, then you'd get Matt Monroe, and then you'd get the Alexander Brothers, and then you'd get Santo and Johnny Sleepwalk. And I remember Santo and Johnny from when I can't remember anything else because it was just this most haunting beautiful thing and I, th- I blame that for all of this i blame that for turning me on to the sound of a you know slide haunting guitar my god i, I don't know santo and johnny no, i don't know i don't you've got you've completely blindsided us is it, is you it, don't know santo and johnny is it, is it the sort of like music version of iron brew you know none of us down here <laughs> yeah. no 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 i've listened to, if, hold on hold on hold on hold on uh, he's reaching right. for right. the tongue Reaching for the beautiful little free yes, for those listening at home, he's now holding a guitar. <laughs> well, I'm not playing that one because it's all out of tune. <laughs> uh, I did, it did remind he's me now of sending you... out for a tech to tune his guitar. Where's the crew when you need one? I know. Yeah, um, I'll do it in acoustic, but you can't. So it's not Santo and Johnny were sweethearts. Santo and yeah. Johnny were two, I don't know, like New York greengrocers or something. One played electric guitar and one played a, a, a steel laptop. You must have heard it. Go, go, kind of... And the melody went. Oh, yes, of course. You must know that. It's a fantastic piece of... You you play it beautifully. It's clearly where your heart lies. Well, it's just, it was, it was... (laughs) If you imagine the the tune that would have inspired uh, Peter Green to write Albatross, oh, okay. that would have been it. You have to look it up. Now, go and do your homework. It's <laughs> a, a little bit of third man about that as well, doesn't it? Well, it's just yes. beautiful. It was just, I mean, it was so unlike anything else I heard at the time. And it was, it was kind of, I suppose, pre-shadows. And, so, and it was the first time I'd heard an electric guitar, albeit a lap steel, playing. And then, of course, you know, we were inundated with the shadows and all the, you know, derivatives of the shadows all playing, you know, fantastic twangy electric guitars. So is that what made you get a guitar? Was it you picked up a guitar first? I did. I didn't. I, I, you know, uh, as I, as I said, I'm going to go back to the, um, the, the, the poor me story. Uh, yeah, in the, in the tenement, we didn't have any money. Um, but my parents, when I was 10 years old, um, 
they, they, they spent half my dad's wages. My dad was on six pounds a week driving a van and they spent three pounds of that buying me a, an acoustic guitar. Because oh. I, I used to do all the competitions on the back of cornflakes packets to win a Burns Bison or something like that, or some kind of you know British Burns electric guitar, never won anything. Um, but they bought me this guitar, and it was actually quite a good guitar. It was an old dance band one. Uh, so the, yeah. the, the main failing of any parents buying their kid the first guitar is to buy the cheapest one they can get because the strings are so far away from the frets, it's like, you know, sticking yeah. your fingers in a mincer. That's what my parents got me. It was five. I mean, admittedly, I have to say, my dad was on seven pounds a week. <laughs> and, he get, and they bought me a five pound guitar. It was one of those F-hole guitars, and it, but it was like a cheese cutter. But I, I guess anything's like a cheese cutter if you've never played guitar before, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah poor little, little boy fingers, very soft, never done any work ever, still haven't. Um, but yeah, that must have ripped uh, fingers to shreds. But this one was actually, the action was quite good on it. The strings weren't too far away. And I, you know, I got the... The Bert, the Bert Whedon play oh, in a day book. Oh, that's a recurring theme on this series, Mitch. It's the, it's the, so it's far, the, I'm the only person uh, involved who, who never had Bert Whedon play in a day. Well, that's because you're a proper musician. <laughs> you, didn't, you, didn't get, you didn't get sold down the Swanee like the, everyone else did with this book. Bert Whedon's play in a day was the joy of sex of kids' musicians. <laughs> <laughs> but not as much fun. <laughs> And he had a beard. <laughs> she wasn't a beard. That was his wife. <laughs> um, so, but come with them bands. You have to have a band. You know, you can't just have a guitar on your own. Um, you you can't have a guitar on your own. You can't have a bass on your own, mate. Welcome to my world. But yes, true. carry on, Mitch. Um, no, you, uh, I think what happens is that once you, you know this, once you get a guitar, you you find like-minded people, you know, your mates at school, they're either into football or hooliganism or, or whatever. And you find the oddity, you know, the other guy who's a bit like you, who's got a guitar and you end up hanging out with them. And before you know it, you're spending, you know, all your kind of waking hours, you know, outside of school, sitting around a, a record player when somebody had one, and, you know, trying to figure out the chords of whatever song you, you fancied, you know, putting the well, same... I'm Put the needle on over and over and over again and tried to figure out what the next chord would be, you know. And of course, the annoying thing was, remember, there was always that thing of trying to learn songs and not realising that usually what happens, the guy at the record company had said, yeah, can you just speed it up a little bit? So everything had been very sped. So you could never figure out why you could never actually get quite in tune with the record. Well, yeah. I was never in tune in the first place. It didn't really matter. <laughs> and in those days, you didn't have tuners. You had a thing called a pitch pipe, you know, which was oh, a funny right. little harmonica type thing with six... Little that's holes right. that you blew in, and that gave you the and you had to do it by ear. So, <laughs> um, Come on, your house was so poor that was your main instrument. Come on, that was the organ of your house. Right? That was that was the entertainment center of our house. <laughs> Gather round, children. I'll get the pitch. We're going to play up. the pitch pipe. <laughs> Were you a Stones or Beatles man, Mitch? Oh, um, Beatles uh, initially. Uh, Beatles because I think it was. Uh, the melodies and the sound of the voices. There was something about those two voices uh, coming together. And it, it doesn't happen very often, but you get two individual voices that are good and then they come together and they're even better singing together in unison, a bit like ABBA. There's something about that. And that was so appealing to a young kid. You know, you, you heard Love Me Do on the, on the radio and it was like somebody had lifted a cardboard box off your head and you were hearing music for the first time. Your career is is extraordinary. You, you know, you 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 went you surfed through a bit of glam rock, then you went into bubblegum pop and you had a a smash hit with that, a number one. 
then then you're, you you sort of miss punk, but you get invited and you do, we'll get to that, but you do power pop instead. And then new electronica. I mean, every genre. Oh, in the way, you, in the meantime, you go and join Thin Lizzy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that, that, we'll, we'll talk to that when we get it. And because I must say this, speaking as someone who's played from the Smiths and Whitesnake and everyone in between, I feel a great <laughs> kinship with you, Mitch, and it's genre hopping. Well, is, is it genre hoping or has it just been flexible? I mean, the, the part of the part of the background, I suppose, and it, goes, it harks back to Scotland, was that we we had no pub rock circuit like you did in England. Um, right. So during the seventies, when you could put your own band together and you go and play every pub and club and whatever you could for a, a five or a night or a ten or a night or something, that didn't exist in Scotland because all the pubs, the licensing laws, were run by the church. And they, they, they said you can't charge money to see entertainment in a pub. Um, so we didn't have that. So we had to be a bit like uh, Ireland. You had to be a kind of jack of all trades. Um, you, had to play, you had to play your show bands. Yeah, exactly. Ireland had show bands and we had us. And uh, you had to go around playing like a human jukebox, playing whatever was in the top 40 uh, to stand in a dance hall and stop people from killing each other on a, on a Friday and Saturday night. Um, so maybe the, the diversity kind of came from there, you know, having to be flexible and malleable when it came to doing the music. And then, of course, when you were allowed to do your own music, you're a bit confused as to exactly what that was. It was kind of like starting all over again, uh, you know, trying to grow up. And it's just that I grew up in, in infamy or fame. I'm not quite sure what. So yeah, what was it? So Slick wasn't the first band, was it? Or Slick grew up? Well, out Slick of... was it? The first band was a band, a local band in Scotland, uh, Salvation. It was a five-piece band who were quite well known at the time. They they were doing the same circuit as uh, a band called Teargas, who went on to become the sensational Alex Harvey band. Wow. Um, so um, so we were trying. I I was in a little band, and Salvation were looking for a keyboard player and the keyboard player in my band, nobody liked him very much. So he wanted to go for the audition and I went with him to make sure he got the job. And uh, and while they were auditioning him, they, I didn't know they were looking for a guitarist. So they asked me to play guitar while they auditioned him and didn't give him the job and offered me the job as guitarist. So I was guitarist in the band, gave up my you know, engineering apprenticeship that I'd done two and a half years of and, uh, and followed music uh, completely. I played guitar, in the band, uh, lead guitarist for two years or something. And then the singer left and I took over vocals. We all did a bit of vocals and changed the name to Slick. I remember me reading a quite in-depth interview with you and I'm trying to think, seeing as you were such a pop band, what the, and I'm thinking it must have been in like beat instrumental or one of the more gear. Quite, quite possibly. I mean, we did yeah. quite a few things with the, the music uh, media, the music papers. So. Because it was interesting, you're because like if you listen to Slip, which I've loved, but I mean beautifully put together stuff and some fantastic actual recording by just then, like drum sounds and bass sounds and stuff, and guitar sounds are really good on that stuff. And you've got these very traditional sort of more bassy rollers s choruses, and some of your ver the verse ideas are quite weird and dark and quirky, you know almost presaging visage or whatever. Well, you know. and, and Bill, we, Bill Campbell, who, who is it who was writing this stuff? With Bill you? Martin and Phil Coulson. Bill Martin. So it was it, basically it was the bassy rollers. It was the same. We turned up from Glasgow with a three-ton truck full of equipment to come and make our first record in London. And as we walked up to Mayfair Studios, which used to be in South Moulton Street, which is a very posh area now, 
Uh, we went yeah. in uh, to make a first record and a truck sitting outside and I could hear the strains of what sounded like a bass of Viola's B-side. And that was our song. That's what we turned up and the session guys had been in that day and knocked, uh, knocked the track off in like an hour. It was Clem Catini and, you know, all these usual session guys. And they played all uh-huh. of these of things. And that's how they used to do it in those days. Because Bill and, and remember, Bill, uh, they, they wrote those songs too, hadn't they? Yeah, Phil was the main writer, I think. You know, I remember Bill Martin, uh, when I kicked off about it, and Bill Martin dragged me outside into the middle of South Moulton Street and proceeded to scream in this young lad's face, uh, saying, you know, get your effing backside back up there and sing that effing song. You know, it was, wow. it was, it was brutal. Wow. So when it went to number one and we got the phone call, nothing didn't do it didn't do a thing it's just my voice is on it and that's about it i think what's interesting about it looking back at that video recently of you guys doing that song on top of the pops and on there's like some sort of video thing you did um is you didn't smile that you know the bay city rollers and all those other bands you know they were they were smiling all over the place it was they were going for the pop yeah going but you guys had this kind of you especially midge had a totally serious face throughout this thing and it was there was something that was like okay this kid is making a pop record here but he's got there's something else behind his eyes well it was it was a square peg in a round hole it felt like you know you, you have to remember that uh, that there was no infrastructure in scotland at the time there were no labels uh, no in fact no recording facilities with a four track recording studio in the centre of Glasgow and that was it and it was for recording pipe bands and accordion bands and stuff traditional music and um, so we had nothing and all of a sudden I'm offered what wasn't a very good record deal but what was a brilliant record deal because it was the only record deal we were ever going to get you know and weirdly you know within a year of you know slick happening in 76 as we crossed the border to go south uh, and start, you know, doing our thing, doing the touring and stuff. All of a sudden, north of the border opened up because indie labels had started. You know, all of a sudden, bands like Simple Minds could stay in Scotland right. and record in Scotland and do it from home. Um, but yeah, it all changed uh, within a, within a matter of months. So maybe and if we uh, hadn't signed the contract, the, we would have. It was even earlier than this. Was it like in '75 that you were asked to join the Pistols? Yeah, '75. I was stopped in the streets of Glasgow by. Um, uh, Bernie Rhodes, uh, who I had no idea who oh. Bernie Rhodes was. You know, Bernie Rhodes went on to manage the Clash, um, and uh, and weirdly, the the guys that uh, you know, the people who owned the Apollo, the Glasgow Apollo, uh, uh, back the Greens Playhouse, it was called back then, and uh, they managed the band. They managed us, and when when travelling bands, when touring bands would come into Glasgow and something would go astray, something would go amiss in their equipment, you couldn't just pick up the phone and phone up a, a you know, a hire company because there weren't any. It really was tumbleweed up there, you know, at that time. So they used to say, go and find Midge, you'll be running McCormack's, the music shop around the corner, he's always hanging about there. And they described me and They'd come around and borrow an amp or a guitar or something. I'd supply them or whatever it was they needed. And, uh, and I thought that this guy stopping me coming out the shop was, was about that. And he said, well, you speak to my mate around the corner. And I went around the corner. There's a beat up old car and Malcolm McLaren sitting in there, you know, oh. in 1975, which was a really bizarre sight to see in the streets of Glasgow, I have to say. And he, he, he whined at me for half an hour talking about his, you know, New York dolls and these shops and his clothes and Vivian Westwood, all of which meant absolutely bugger all to me. Yeah. 
And then he said, I'm putting a band together. Do you want to join? Would you like to join? And I said, well, you haven't asked what I do. They stopped me because of how I looked. They stopped me because I had James Dean quiff and straight trousers and when everybody else had stack heel boots and flares. And Is this before uh, Forever and Ever? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And ironically, because Slick did actually have a song with punk in the title, didn't they? Although that would have been in the traditional sense. I mean, that was, punk. yeah, that was the song that broke the camel's back. <laughs> 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 it, was a, it was a token gesture to what was going on because we just kept shaking our heads thinking, my God, we're tied to this contract. The songs are getting worse. And, and Phil Coulter, who's a lovely guy and a great, great songwriter, great musician, uh, his token gesture towards what was happening was um, a song called The Kids Are Punk. Yeah. And the opening line went, hey, hey, hear what they say. He looks just like James Dean. And that was it. We, we went, that's it. So it's the game's a bogey. We're done. We are, we are through. And, and we just walked away from the contract. We, we, we said we'd never do it again. Let's just play this game for a bit, though, Midge, and just imagine that you did say yes to Malcolm McLaren, and <laughs> the lead singer of, of the Sex Pistols. What, what, what would have happened to the world? <laughs> well, I, I, think the pist <laughs> I think the Pistols would never have happened. It would have been, it would have been dead. You would have been water. terribly polite to Bill Grundy, probably. Yeah, I, I see, Bill. You can't <laughs> use language like that. <laughs> Bill Grundy would still be in a job if you. That's true. Yeah, yeah, he'd be the head of you know ITV or something. You know. <laughs> I have no idea. But no, no, it was it was a non-starter. And because they never said they never said you want to be the singer or do you want to be the guitarist. They just said you want to be in the band. Yeah. Because it was really about selling clothes. It was about they wanted they wanted a clothes horse um to put Vivian's, you know, ripped t-shirts and bondage trousers on. Uh, and and weirdly, he happened to put together a brilliant band. Yeah. But he did say that years yeah. later. He finally said, you know, I put the Sex Pistols together to sell trousers and we sold a lot of trousers. Yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> <laughs> but the irony is, is that you ended up playing in a in what I think was a great band. It's certainly a great inspiration on me as a kid, as a young musician. Uh, with the songwriter of the Sex Pistols, uh, you formed a band, yeah. with Glenn Mallow, the Rich Kids, which I still to this day think of the as the link between between punk and the neuromantic movement. And of course, it should be the link because it was you and Rusty Egan in that band. Weirdly, yes. Um, uh, you know, when I thought after after being very stoic and breaking the contract after the kids are punk and, and, and going back up to Glasgow to lick my wounds and, and try and find a new record deal and stuff, which was never going to happen. It was not on the cards at all. Once you're, once you're tarred with that particular brush, you cannot <laughs> shake it off. And, um, and I went back and I'm sitting in my little house in Glasgow and I got a phone call from Glenn Matlock uh, or his friend who was acting as his manager saying, um, we've been speaking to Caroline Kuhn, who's, uh, who was a journalist, a music journalist. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, she reviewed Slick. She saw Slick playing live and absolutely fell in love with the band. I think she, liked, I think she fancied the bass player. And she got a different bass player eventually. Yes, yeah, right, saying that was Simo, didn't she? <laughs> yeah. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, and and she, she, they said she told us that we've been looking for a singer. We're, we're already a three piece, and we need somebody to front the band. She told us you're the guy to do it. So unbeknownst to me, I got this this amazing you know hook thrown my way, and I packed my 1954 Vauxhall Wyvern that I bought for 200 quid, full of my stuff, and drove to London. And uh, the day that I arrived, uh, we went straight into a rehearsal room. And we learned three songs that Glenn and Steve, the guitarist, had, had kind of written together. And then we went out that night and we went to the Angel Islington uh, where the police were playing 
hang on, this is where our stories collide from the other week because I was at yeah. that at the Hope and Anchor. The Hope and Anchor, but it was when Henry was playing guitar. That's it. So I went down and I said, I've said on this program before when we were talking to Stuart Coburn, and I went down and I poked my head around the corner and there were three people watching this band called The Police. And I went, no, fuck, them. fuck that, it was you. <laughs> it probably was, yeah. Because we, we, no, no, we went in and we blagged the way in, Glenn blagged his way in and said, look, the support act hasn't turned up. We'll go up and play the three songs we just learned. So we did. Then oh straight, yeah, so, so we opened up for the police there. That was the first night in London. And then we went to a warehouse party where there's The Clash, Susie and the Banshees, Billy Idol, you know, everybody that I'd been reading about in the, in the music mags. And we played our three songs there. Then we went to uh, the Camden Palace, whatever it was called, People's Palace, whatever it was at the time in yeah. Camden. No, it wasn't. It was the music uh, machine. It was the music, the music machine. machine. And, yes. and uh, Geldof and the Rats were playing, and we went up and played our three songs there as well. So I did three gigs the first night I was in London. Thank <laughs> <Woo>! you. <laughs> so that's you and Glenn and Steve New. And, and Rusty. And, and Rusty. And what songs were they? Rich Kids, I'm guessing? No, I, I can't, you know, I, I think it was probably things like Burning Sounds and whatever. Right. The album tracks, I think they were. They, yeah, Burning Sounds is more, very Glenn, isn't it? But more to the point, Gary, if you'd stuck around at the police gig, you might have ended up having a night out of your life with this lot. Or, or their roadie, which would have ruined the whole <laughs> place of music as we know it. Because <laughs> I, I have to say that I fell in love with the rich kids. Um, I'd sort of lost... I love the rich kids as well. I always adore the rich kids, must be said. So it was... You know, I'd done the whole, I'd seen the Sex Pistols with Glenn, actually, in 76 at, at the Screen on the Green. I was there. And, um, yeah, and, uh, and I've kind of grown out. Is this, a, is this a weekly occurrence, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had our band that we were kicking off with at school, you know, minus my brother at the time. And then you guys came along and, and, and you were, because I also love Generation X, but you were, you had a style. Oh, my God. I mean, Steve New was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on stage. And, but you were growing it, you had longer hair, you had really funky colored clothes on and, and tunes, I mean, incredible tunes. And, and that was it. We went to the Nashville to see you play first. I remember there was spitting from the front row, uh, which was the thing to do at that time. And Rusty just put his sticks down, got up, walked to the front, anyone spits at me. And then, you know, <laughs> and he realized we're in a different place now. This punk's finished. Uh, yeah, I know. It was it was weird times because it was a kind of transitional period, wasn't it? It was late 77, early 78. So the, the first wave, the, the proper wave of punk had been and gone and moved on to other things. The Clash were a huge band and, you know, the Pistols had been and gone and broken up and all of that stuff. It just makes me think about when you're young, just how time frames are so different. We're talking about this whole thing coming about, starting, finishing, mutating into something else and in a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's ludicrous. I mean, I, I thought about it the other day. Uh, there was um, there was three years between uh, Slick having uh, number one with Forever and Ever and writing Vienna, and that's 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 ridiculous. I mean, the the the, the trajectory is just huge because when you're young, you know no boundaries. You just you're given yeah. the opportunity, you are off and running. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, the Rich Kids was great fun, but. You know, I bought a synthesizer and brought it into the Rich Kids in 1978, which immediately broke the band up. It split the band in two. Steve and Glenn hated it, didn't want anything to do with it. And Rusty and I were going, whoa, what can we do with this thing? How well, do we integrate this into rock the band? Clagen, didn't they? They, they, they wanted small faces organ, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And, and they, they didn't see 
they didn't well I can understand why they didn't see why if you're going to have a keyboard in a band that you should maybe have a keyboard player as well because I'm not a keyboard player you know but the, the whole idea of you know the, the early synthesizer stuff was it was punk ethos you know buy it and play it with your finger and make it do things that nobody else makes it do so it was the same kind of punk new wave ethos but just using a different instrument hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the greatest moments of my life is actually years and years later playing with you guys and getting to and doing that whole show. First of all, we've met Steve just before he died, which is uh, getting up on stage with uh, and doing a couple of numbers. And then eventually getting the whole band back together to do that, that one-off show. Um, that was, I thought we had, we had a great time doing that. Such it a great fabulous. song. It was, but, it, was, it was classic musicians. We rehearsed for four days to, to play a 45-minute set. <laughs> the, the one song you notice in that set is The Sound of Marching Men. You know, you think, hang on, that song doesn't belong to the rich kids. That belongs in the 80s somewhere. Well, again, it was a, that was a kind of board of contention because uh, some people saw it as progress and other people saw it as regress. Um, you know, it was the first time we'd used a string machine and a, and a synthesizer uh, in, a, in a track. And it, was, um, and it was the first, I think, probably reasonable song that I had written. And that, that was directly because I was in a completely different environment. Remember back to the whole, you know, the whole anti-fascist thing that was going on in London at the time, rock against racism, you know, all of that. This was all new to me. You know, we didn't have this in Glasgow. This was all a new experience. So the whole idea of never again, you know, the sound of marching men, uh, it all came to me living in London. I've never have written that in Glasgow. Where where were you living, Midge, out of interest? I was in, uh, well, um, I was in uh, Made of Ale, which is very posh. I was in a bed sitting made of ale until the money ran out. And Glenn still lives around that area. He's never no, moved. I, from I saw him just a couple of weeks ago outside a cafe. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering why, because we have to talk about the fact that the rich kids had Mick Ronson producing that album. I mean, just the idea of spending time with one of, who I think is one of the greatest guitar players ever. Um, and, and I'm wondering also if the synthesizer thing, because this is really important, isn't it? Because it's going to define you and all of us in the 80s. Is, was, it, was it Bowie in, in, in Berlin that, that turned you on to that? Or, or, or it's, it's about that time, isn't it? it well, I think I remember, I remember when I was in Slick, the heyday of Slick, um, sitting in a hotel room in, uh, uh, in Kensington. You know, absolutely skint. Uh, you got three pounds a day to go and buy yourself a McDonald's or something. That was it. That's all you were given. And I, I remember hearing "Low" for the first time, and it was just outrageous. I mean, it was outrageous. I'd never heard anything quite like it, and uh, and being absolutely besotted with that, the, the sounds and the atmospheres and the textures and the ambience that was created on that record. But it was still a rock record, so it veered from you know, Brian Eno to straight out and out, you know, sound and vision, you know, great. It was fantastic. It was wonderful stuff. So, um, so for me, uh, when, when the rich kids finally 
got round to trying to you know make a record. They, I think what was being pushed on us by EMI was the guy who had been doing the demos for the band up until that point, who was a kind of in-house uh, producer, engineer, perfectly good guy, made a really good job of the stuff. But I pushed for, for Ronson because like you, uh, Ronson was one of the most melodic, tasteful musicians I've ever come across. And I just thought, we're a guitar band first and foremost. Why wouldn't we have a great you know, guitarist in here producing the band? And um, as it turns out, he didn't do a brilliant job. He was the first person to admit it. He didn't do a great job with the rich kids uh, because, you know, we were young and wet behind the years and very naive. And Rusty used to start faster than, you know, he'd, he'd end up and, you know, or whatever. It was just, you know, what does he And it was off and he's like a train, you know. How he talks. <laughs> a bit like how he talks, yeah, exactly. You, you can't control him. So he had yeah. a real problem trying to get all of that so it settled and, and started to sound like a band. But the, the, the final uh, product was, was great. It was, it was good. And had we... Had I not bought the synthesizer and had we not, you know, had it not split the band in half, I think maybe a second album could have proved to be quite interesting because it was different. It was veering off on a different trajectory, I suppose. No, there was, because from here, your life just goes mental, doesn't it, yeah. for the next few years? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it took a lull, you know, after the after the demise of the rich kids. Uh, you know, Rusty and I used to hang out together because he was running his little club Billy's at the time um, and and uh, playing a lot of music. Never heard of it. Uh, <laughs> it was coming in from Europe and things. So, but this is where I would have first seen you across a smoky room a uh, smoky dance hall Gary. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've spoken about this on here before Get we, a have, room. we uh we uh, had boy george on the show as well and uh you know that that they they were extraordinary moments for uh, to that club wasn't it billy's and then blitz and, and there you were and i'm thinking okay there's this this isn't all new because I, I remember this guy being around and um uh you know who was in who was in rich kids and it was like well there's there's, there's a there's someone passing the baton here because little did I know you were going to form a super group as well um, but then I remember the first time I actually spoke to you was down at Visconti's studio in Soho is that where you were working on the Visage Fade uh, Tar record more possibly um, or Fade I, Grey I, I honestly can't remember um, I, I, th I know we did some stuff down there but that may have been with uh, uh, Phil Liner or whatever well then I was there for that because I remember actually being in the in the studio then going to the toilets and out of one cubicle a single cubicle burst Phil Linnett and Steve Jones <laughs> I'm, I'm 20 years old I'm thinking this is weird they were very close <laughs> yeah don't go there uh, yeah um, yeah, well, the weird thing was that at the demise of the rich kids, yeah, I had my synthesizer on my guitar. <clears throat> Rusty and I used to hang out. Rusty was making a little bit of money from his DJing, and I was skint. And he used to take me to a little cafe called The Galleon in, uh, in Notting Hill. And you could get a, a chicken pull-off there for a pound. And he used to buy me my dinner at night because I was so absolutely skint. And on one of the walks back from, from eating in this place, Rusty, who talks at a million miles an hour and comes up with a million ideas in half an hour, it's like, <laughs> he said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had a band with all our favorite musicians? You know, Billy Curry, the guys from magazine. And I went, stop, right, let's do that. Let's do that. And we put together the basis of Visage. I'd been in the studio with the, the demo time that was left uh, for the rich kids. 
in your contract that gives you X amount of time to make demos. Well, I took a quarter of that time and went in and did a, an electronic version of Zig and Evans in the year 2525, which was the crux of what Visage was going to sound like. So I already had that, but just didn't have the concept of how you, how you take this further. And it was Rusty's idea. And we just said, great. And I went off and I drew the logo and I came up with the name and I you know, did all of that stuff. And from there, working on that project over a period of a year, I suppose, you know, bought begging and borrowing and stealing studio time, uh, bearing in mind that magazine was still touring, uh, Ultravox as they were at the time was still touring, and the rich kids still had a few dregs of gigs to do at the end that we were committed to doing. So trying to get everyone together in the one space was almost impossible. But, you know, that was how I ended up segueing into Ultravox. Do you know, I have to say this one last thing, because I don't want to be bossing this period, but I was sort of around at the time, and I do remember... No, 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 no it's yours, mate, it's yours, it's yours. It's the, the, floor. the floor, but I, rem I remember distinctly the first introduction I got to this band was Rusty. I bump into Rusty, sunny afternoon somewhere, and he drags me into a doorway, and he's got a cassette record, and he plays me in the year 2525. Yeah. <laughs> That's that sounds feasible. That's that's very plausible. Yeah, I I I think Rust, Rusty's great. He's a walking billboard. You know, whether you want him to be or not, you know, your your deepest darkest secrets aren't safe. But we were saying recently, guy, weren't we? How great John McGeeck was, and people forget he played in Visage. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, John John was a great guitar player. They're very very different, very different ideas. You know, great guy. Listening back to the first Visage album, which haven't you know listen to for a while and it's i mean some of it is is fantastic some i mean it's stolen really well there's some very charmingly naive who was the smoker in the band or did you all smoke uh rusty was the smoker i think um yeah he was oh, yeah. A, he was the the one to get it. he doesn't get that voice from nowhere you know that's uh, that's you've got to work at that <laughs> uh no 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 i'll tell you what it, it was it was pure fantasy the whole thing we had done that first album, some of which was, as you say, was, was still stands up and it's still good. It was experimental. I was doing it mainly as a, as a production vehicle. I wanted to be in the studio in charge of what was going on as opposed to being told what to do by someone else. Um, so my, my whole thing was about the production and, uh, and working on that and the sounds and whatever we were using. And we had done the album and we realised that we were a track short, but Billy had been out touring with Gary Newman. I had- Billy Curry joined, from Ultravox. Billy Curry, sorry, Billy Curry, keyboard player, had been out touring with Gary Newman. I had already joined Ultravox. Uh, they had come back from uh, an American tour without John, without uh, Robin Simon, the guitarist. They'd been dropped by the record label when he got back. Um, so I joined this band, of course, um, and, and, and it was ecstatic. I mean, the, 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 the brilliant thing was that we scraped together whatever money we had in the pockets to get a rehearsal studio for a day. And we went in with whatever equipment we had, which is incredibly basic. And the moment we plugged in and made a noise, it was magnificent. It was the best thing. But weren't Ultravox were very much, I mean, I may have this completely wrong, but I was because of the way people talk about John Fox, I wondered if he was very much the driving force behind it up till before. I think, met. I think again, so, I've only met John once and, and uh, what I've gleaned from everyone else was that he drove the songwriting lyric wise uh, but you listen to even Ultravox before I was in the band. Billy Curry is all over it. Billy yeah. Curry, classically trained musician. He's got very. He's kind of like he's like the style. Sid Barrett of electro. <laughs> kind of yes. <laughs> Dirty great synth sound. I've never worked out how he does that. Yeah, I know. I've watched them. I've watched them doing it many, many times, and it's 
it's unique to him. It's a sound that he, ma he makes a synthesizer on an, an ARP Odyssey. He made it sound like Jimi Hendrix was playing it, yeah. and bending and twisting and growling. And it's got fuzz boxes. It's got, you know, overdriven amps. It's got all sorts of stuff going on. And it doesn't sound like any other synth. Nobody, nobody else has made one sound like that. Guy, I'm just thinking, are there any bands where, where they've been really successful and they've got a good cult following and then suddenly the lead singer changes and they become even bigger? I mean, yeah, I can't think. Can't think. Genesis. Genesis, of course. <laughs> of course, of course. Although he was in the band at the back. But yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah, and also, obviously, you, you, you're at the forefront. And you, all the synthesizer-driven stuff, your Ultravox and, uh, you know, happening and Visage is happening. So obviously you're going to go and play for Thin Lizzy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know it's an oddity, isn't it? I remember. I, mean, what? I, I, I saw I saw Lizzie when they were a three-piece playing in a tiny little club in Glasgow when nobody was interested in them, uh, because I used to I used to be a fan of a band called Skid Row, uh, and Skid Row had oh, a very yes. young sixteen-year-old Gary Moore. So I watched this band and I fell in love with Phil's voice. Great singer, great lyricist, great songwriter. And he was hanging out as well, wasn't he? And we used to hang out. We used to hang out. When I moved to London, um, I, I met him in Glasgow. Uh, and then he remembered me when I moved to London. We bumped into each other in an underground somewhere. And we, we just met up and just used to hang out uh, and whatever. So, um, so yeah, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy, why choose me? I'm not a whiz kid guitar player. You know, I, I play perfectly well, but I'm not fast. And the whole thing about Lizzie is, is all the twiddly diddly stuff. And you um, didn't have long I, hair and wear a kimono. I didn't have any of that at all. <laughs> None of it, you know. But I, I, I found out subsequently, only in the last couple of years, why uh, I was uh, beckoned. Uh, I was in the studio finishing the first Visage album. I'd just joined Ultravox. We were working on the VN album, working on the, the songwriting for the VN album and putting the ideas together. Billy worked with, went off to work with uh, Tubewee Army. Uh, on tour to generate some income to buy some of the kit we needed because we had nothing. There was nobody behind us. And uh, and I got a phone call in the studio uh, doing the Visage stuff uh, saying, uh, Phil's going to call you in a minute. He's in Arkansas. And the phone rang and it was Phil saying, Gary Moore's out the band. We're opening up for Journey. We're playing Megadomes. Um, can you fly out tomorrow? And, and, and I've learned since that you never say, no, I'm not good enough. You say yes, and then figure it out later. Yeah. So I get home from the studio, and sitting on my doorstep in my little flat was a pile of cassettes, a set list, and a plane ticket, and an itinerary. And it was two o'clock in the morning, and I just got in, and I looked at the itinerary. I didn't look at anything else. And uh, I looked at the itinerary. It said the car's coming to pick you at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. So I packed my case and did all of that stuff. Uh, you know, my headphones, my ghetto blaster, because I had to learn the set on the plane. I thought, well, I've got to fly to New York and then get a connecting flight. I've never been to America and get a connecting flight down to New Orleans and meet up the band in New, or New Orleans. And I get, I get to the thing and, the, and I'm, I'm ushered. As soon as I get out of the car, I'm kind of ushered down some red carpet somewhere. They'd sent me out on Concord. So the idea of learning the set on the plane was completely out the window. This is the biggest gig you've ever done in your life, right? It's, well, it's, yes. Uh, yeah, they flew me out in Concord. I'm sitting on Concord with my headphone, big headphones and a big well, ghetto blaster. And I've got to say, me, at such short notice, I'm sorry, mate, I might have to shop you here because it looks like you were working illegally. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I was on a tourist visa. I, and... Um, <laughs> so you, there you are doing harmony guitars with Scott Gorham or? First night, first night I arrived in, in 
New Orleans. How do you know? How do you know which harmony was yours? Scott told me. Well, I didn't. You know, I was learning all the chord structures. <laughs> the tricky bit was coming later, and of course, it's almost interchangeable. Lizzie's songs were all based around the same four chords, so you could put any harmony guitar solo in any of the songs. I nearly did a Lizzie tour years later, but not the real Lizzie. There's sort of remnants. I just got asked to do it because I, I, I just because I really like Scott. And yeah. so actually I, I didn't do it, but I ended up learning the stuff. And you're right. And it's all really simple until there's that big Celtic number. Oh, uh, Black Rose. Oh, no. Yeah, Black Rose. That's all over the shop. Oh, it's that was that was the album they were they were promoting oh, at the yeah, time. Yeah. And it's the one song yeah. that I just couldn't play. I, yeah, that, that's, I, could, I kind of gave it. I think that's why, you know, I just thought, you know what? I'm out. It's all just, that Celtic. Did you play the whiskey in the jar riff? I we I not on that tour um we because we were opening up for Journey so it was like a 40 45 minute set 50 minute set something like that so we did a lot of the stuff uh, that they were known for you know jailbreak and you know get out here and all of that stuff and uh but not whiskey in a jar but when we did uh, because when I went back from that tour uh I went straight in with Ultravox and carried on uh, writing and recording the Vienna album and um and they said, well, the band's got to go to uh, Japan. Um, can you do the J Japanese tour? Because they haven't got time to find a new guitar. They're going to try out a new guitarist, but they're not ready to take them on yet. So would you come out? So I did the Japanese tour. And then when I got back to Ultravox again, they said, and we've got an Irish tour. Can you just do the Irish? That'll be the last one. We're, just trying, out, we're trying out Snowy White. So can we, can we do the Irish tour? So, um, you know, on the Irish tour, it was hysterical because I was up the back with a synthesizer, which you couldn't hear. You've never been able to hear keyboards and Lizzie. They should never have keyboards <laughs> and Lizzie. So I'm up the back there sucking my cheeks in with all this heavy metal, you know, these rockers going, eh, you wanker. <laughs> and I'm standing there sucking my cheeks. Going, you know. And then for the last six were you, songs, Sorry, were you growing your pencil moustache at that point? <laughs> I, was, I was anticipating the pencil moustache. And uh, I went down to the front. They called me down the front and stuck a guitar on me for the last five or six numbers to rock out. And, of course, we're playing Cork. And nobody knew, except Brian and Phil and I, how Whiskey in the Jar went. Because Scott wasn't in the band when it happened, and Snowy didn't know it. And so I, I played Whiskey in the Jar. And all of a sudden, I went from wanker to a hero. Yes! Wow. It was like Cork and Kerry Mountains. There I was. It was great. Schoolboy moment. Song. What a song. It's cut to... Cropped screen, a shot on film, backlit, third man, you in a Mac, yep. and and the world changes, right? Uh, it was, it, you know, it, it, for us, it was a logical conclusion, but mainly Chris and I, uh, Chris, the, Chris Allen, Chris Cross, the bass player. Um, you know, when I joined the band, I knew nothing but photography. I, I liked photographs, but they all had 35 mil cameras. So I learned very quickly about taking photographs and imagery and graphics and design. Um, so going from using, you know, working with Peter Saville or whatever on, on graphics and things uh, later, uh, working on the graphics for the, for the uh, VN album and things, uh, because we took, we took as much interest in what the record went, went in as as what went on the records, if you know what I mean. So the sleeves were incredibly important. The adverts were important. The stage sets and the lighting and stuff were important. Although we had no budget to do anything big, you had to use your imagination. So when it came to doing a video for Vienna, we'd already done a video prior to it for a song called uh, Passing Strangers, which was shot in 16 millimeter, our instigation, 
crop the screen top and bottom to make it look like CinemaScope, all of that, all the parameters that Vienna ended up having. We shot that video with Russell Mulcahy, who went on to do Vienna. And of course, when we went out to do Vienna, the label said, why do you want a video? Why, why? It's already number two. And we said, well, don't you understand that with a video, we're in control of what people see all around the world. It's, you know, you remember what it was like going to do Saturday night television in Germany or whatever. We've done a few of those together in, in various states of, you know, drunkenness. Always setting up a killer, aren't they? Uh, yeah, well, the, you know, the, well, I, I, I remember, I remember seeing you, young Gary Kemp, smashing no. up all the all the hired instruments on a television show, <laughs> you rock and roll rebel, <laughs> and I, but I tried, I to explain to the label that by making a video, that five minutes of television that they could just slot into their program would be better television than the thirty-five minutes surrounding it, and uh, they just didn't get it at all. So we ended up, we ended up making the video ourselves. And then from that moment on, everything changed. Julian Temple has a tarantula walk over him in that, doesn't he? He does, yeah. We had to do a couple of versions because it was scary, you know. Here's the thing, forget that, the, the video. Yeah. The tarantula, this tarantula was the same one. Hang on. Sean Connery's chest. No. Doctor No, yes. The same How tarantula. old was it? Yeah. <laughs> it was oh. It was old, but happy. <laughs> But also, actually, one other thing about Vienna is it's one of those things which is, you, often happens with uh, records that are incredibly important and you find, like my generation, it never got to number one. It didn't get to number one, but... Yeah. Um, and, and it's weird because the world remembers what kept it off. You know, John Lennon was shot and then, and then there was a comedy record, uh, Shut Up of Your Face, which everyone still reminds me of today, um, which is just nonsense, really. It wasn't even a good comedy record, but... They, they all think that Ultravox were absolutely miffed by this. You've got to remember what it's like having a number two record, having a record, especially something like Vienna, it was so alien to the charts. That, that Something like that was so bizarre to get the charts. To, to get that to number two for the four or five weeks it was there was immense. It was yeah. huge, and it changed everything. And people forget that. People forget we were playing sleazy clubs, up until that became successful, then you're elevated way above and beyond that because of that one song. Yeah. I've always been interested in you, Midge, and your, your 360 approach to uh, your job. I think you inspired me greatly in the early 80s with your ambitions to, to be in charge of the graphic and the video, as you've just said. I think with Vienna, what it did was it totally encapsulated a moment when we were all, obviously at that point, very, very into the nostalgia of 1940s, 50s movies and, and obviously the third man. Yep. The sparse quality of that music, the, the fact that it was electronic, it did have, it had an austere quality, but it also had an emotive ambience about it. Um, and I think that's really partly what you do, isn't it, Midge? It's, you're really into music that has a kind of, has a very white feel, but is incredibly emotional. And, and, uh, and at the same time, has a, has a dance beat underneath there. Well, I think I think the whole kind of electronic movement that happened in the late seventies, early early eighties, uh, whether you call it new romantic or electropop or techno or, or you know whatever it's called, um, it was all based in it was European based. It wasn't based in the blues or jazz or mm -hmm. funk or American soul. Weirdly, for the first time ever, I think it went the other way around because of, <laughs> and you know this. 
because of uh, the sounds and the machines we were using that could create instant atmospheres or give you a fantastic bass drum sound, the house guys in Chicago heard those songs, heard those tracks, and they used to play Fade to Grey and, and Vienna and whatever, and then play other tracks underneath them. And, 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 and they took that and turned it into house music. So they took the sounds and the elements of what we had, and they ran off with it and made something new. But yes, for the first time ever, we had an instrument that you could, you could maybe see on Tomorrow's World. <laughs> that was as close as you were ever going to get to it because back in the day, a, you know, Mini Moog uh, would cost the price of a small house. So when the Japanese synthesizer manufacturers, Roland and Yamaha and Korg and all of those guys, came out with slightly affordable machines, the machine was as limited as your imagination. So mm -hmm. home recording, technology, instant atmosphere. I changed from writing on guitar to writing on a keyboard because you could play the same three chords as you play in the guitar, but all of a sudden, those three chords on a synthesizer, you were in deepest, darkest, you know, black and white Europe. You know, yeah. it just took you somewhere else. So it was an enhancement to the whole songwriting idea. It was like a, a mind-expanding drug, but it was a keyboard. Yeah. Because that's why it seems quite funny now, going back and hearing how a lot of those records actually had things like a bass player or a guitarist at all. And it seems well, you like, think that people talk about you know Vienna as a as a, a you know synthesizer album, and it's far from it. You know, Ultravox were a rock band. Uh, yeah. We used electronics, but we also used electric guitars. There's electric guitar all over the Vienna album. All stood still. It's all chugging electric guitars and you know solos and stuff. But people people hear what they've seen on television. They, when, they, when they listened to the Vienna album, they saw the guys they saw on top of the pops sucking their cheeks in, standing behind the synthesizer. But Live Aid, no, Band Aid. So you, I believe you were at the Tube when Bob gave you the call, the call came through from Bob? Yeah, I was on the Tube, the music programme. Music uh, show, the yes, Newcastle. beloved Newcastle show. Yeah, and, uh, and I was chatting to Paula. We'd been mates for years. And uh, Bob called her. Uh, she was hugely pregnant. Uh, he was at home looking after the children or, or whatever. Uh, Boomtown Rats were done and uh, he, he, she said oh he wants to speak to you and uh, I got on the phone he said look I've just seen this thing on television this Michael Burke footage on the news um, it's six o'clock in the evening I'm about to go on and do this program live he said it's horrendous Ethiopia famine blah blah I want to do something but I'm not in a position to do it can we talk when you get back so we met up and we talked about this by which point I'd seen the footage it was talking about and uh, I think I think one of the first people he met was Gary he walked into uh, uh, in Kings Road. You were in a yeah. yeah. yeah you were you were in a, a an antique store. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, this and would have been the next day. It would have been the day after. The day after, probably right. Okay. So so he, he accosted you, and then walked around the corner again after accosting you, and 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 found Simon Lebon. And of course, the challenge would have been, well, Gary's doing it, so, yeah. so of course he can't say no. The Janana. So, um, I, 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 I remember because you hadn't you uh, did you written with Bob before? No, 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 no. Oh, well, I'm just wondering uh, why he chose you to to write. Right because, because he could play whiskey in the jar, obviously. Probably yes. I was I was, <laughs> I was Celtic enough. Um, I think because it was there. To tell you the truth, I think he he was he really didn't think that he had the clout to pull this off on his own. And he didn't oh, right. have a song. That's fair. Um, yeah. he, had, he had half a song. He had a bit of an idea, which he, he told me much later. He'd already written, but the rats had turned it down. It was so bad. And, um, and we met up and, and we came to the obvious conclusion that we're skilled at nothing other than what we do. 
Um, we had to, if we had a Christmas number one, uh, we, we could generate possibly a hundred thousand um, pounds on the royalty that an artist was on at the time because the charts freeze and it stay number one for three weeks or something. Um, and then we realized, of course, you couldn't just do a Christmas cover because 50% of the record sales would go to the writers or, you know, or their estate. So we had to write something. Um, I went home that night uh, and I sat with a little toy keyboard and came up with a da 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 da, da thing mm -hmm. and sent it to him in a cassette, which he hated. And then he came over to mine with a guitar. He plays a right-handed guitar upside down because he's oh, left-handed. awful to play with. You can never see oh, dreadful. I'm, I'm looking at the chords like this, trying to figure out what he's playing. And every time he played me, he's good, it's good. Yeah, and it sounds like Dylan when, it when mad, you hear yeah, 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 demented Dylan. And, uh, <laughs> and every time he sang it, it was different. So he was obviously just making this thing up. So... Um, I had just finished building my first studio at the bottom of the garden. I'd just invested in all this. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll start throwing the ideas together. Bob originally wanted Trevor Horn to do it, but Trevor would have taken six weeks, he said, to make a single. So yeah. uh, he gave that us right. 24 hours in the studio, <clears throat> which everybody saw. It's the, it's the 24 hours that all the artists were there. Um, and I spent four days uh, sculpting this song. I played all the instruments on there. Um, and then uh, we turned up on the day. Uh, not knowing who was going to turn up. You know, you guys had all said, yeah, I'll be there. But we realised very quickly we'd, we hadn't spoken to an adult, you know, somebody who might write down where and when and what date and what time the session was. And But everybody turned up. It was just immense. I know, suppose Geldof was doing that all himself, wasn't he? Because I remember we were in Japan and he phoned me in Japan and he said, you know, this is going to happen. You better be there. And of course, but I remember turning up and all the track, you played the track to us all. Yeah. And uh, we're all sitting there, Bono and, and everybody is, that's there. And you and the track had already been done, but Phil hadn't played drums on it at that point. Yeah. So I, I had done the track. So I'd, I'd recorded the entire thing and I'd done it, I'd done it with the drum machine and, and all that. I'd put all those samples and things. In fact, the opening drum hit on there, I stole from um, Tears for Fears from The Hurting. So if oh you listen God. to The Hurting again, that opening doo, is that sound. Yeah, so Roland, that. That's so no. funny because we were talking, Roland was saying about how he turned it down. Well, so they, fact, they they are on the record. I told them much, much later that they made it to the record. <laughs> so yeah, that was it. And, and Phil was brilliant. Phil gave us his one day off and came in and, and played the drums. You'll remember, he played, yeah. he did two takes and he did the first take, which was brilliant. And he said, I overplayed, let me just do it again. And he simplified it and it was just brilliant. Because you know? I remember we all went out in the studio and I sort of played an acoustic guitar with Phil, but I think that was just for the video. But I do remember Tre Trevor turning up and getting us all into the choir situation. He was going to make some extra stuff for the 12-inch mix. Oh, well, no, he, he came up with the idea of doing a madrigal, you know. Uh, do they know? Do they know? Do they? Yeah, Which right. could have taken forever. And he wasted an hour, an hour, of my precious 24 hours. And I had to say to Trevor, thanks, but no thanks. This really, it's a great idea, but it would take weeks, so we can't do it. You know, I had to mix the record that night. You know, once I kicked everybody out of the studio, I had to start mixing the record at, you know, eight, 10 o'clock in the evening, because it had to be finished and in the pressing plants by eight o'clock the next morning to get it pressed up. So we didn't have any time to mess around. I, 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 you've got so much in your life that this program, which normally takes about an hour, is going way into the second hour. And I hope you don't mind us keeping you a bit longer, Midge, do you? 
This is great. This, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm enjoying it. It, 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 it. It's such a joy. And of course, you know, you you then went on with, with Bob and we all ended up doing Live Aid together and we all remember that well. Did you feel, and listen, we all love Bob. We can make that statement right now. But did you did you feel a little bit pushed to the side during that time when Geldof became the absolute epicenter of the whole movement, as it were. You know what? It, um, it's very difficult to say. Yes, you do. You know, up until up until the day, and you'll remember this as well, because uh, I think you were there. Uh, the day we announced uh, live aid going to happen from on the field in Wembley. Um, you know, I, I, it was it was the two of us all the way up to that point, and then I'm standing on the field and. Bob announced what was going on to the to the media, and I thought, well, that's a bit weird. That's a bit odd because we were in this together. We've been building this up together, and it was it was odd, but it's kind of understandable in the way we're very different characters. I'm the guy, I've described it as like the two of us standing at a busy bar trying to buy a drink, and he gets his straight away, and I'm still there twenty minutes later waving my twenty quid, <laughs> you know, and and it's just the way we are. You know, Bob's loud and brash and and great and driven uh, and, and it would have never have happened without that kind of drive but it was a bit odd to sit back and and still you know 35 years later here uh, Bob Geldof uh, Bob, Bob Geldof's band-aids and Bob Geldof oh for god's sake then again it's it should hurt me but it doesn't hurt me any more than shut up your face stop in Vienna yeah. But the Queen recognised that, That's the one. No, that's the one. To that's be. the one to be annoyed channel, about. Channel, channel your rage there. <laughs> Bloody Australians. <laughs> you uh, going off doing your solo stuff, Midge. How did that... We're talking about you irking people and you being irks now and, and the nitty gritty of, of, of all our pop music lives when we end up, you know, fighting and squabbling. How did you going off doing and having a extremely successful solo career and having number ones. Um, how did that affect you with, with the rest of Ultravox? In fact, how did, you know, the Live Aid Band Aid thing must have affected you with Ultravox? Oh, that was that was the that was the split. That was it. Um, oh. You know, the last time we performed as a four piece, the four piece that Ultravox were during the 80s um, was Live Aid. Um, and I think we held our heads high and we did a, a very good job considering at the time we used to do a five hour sound check because of the technology, because we'd never used backing tracks or pre-programmed sequences or anything. Um, so, uh, so yeah, after that, my life was kind of changed. You know, I was involved in, in the Band-Aid Trust. I'm still involved in the Band-Aid Trust. It's a, an ongoing thing. Um, uh, I, I took my solo record, my first uh, solo album The Gift which I'd recorded during a break that we were having from each other uh, I, I finished that and took that round the world and things just took me away from the band so I was away from Ultravox for two years and and any relationship <laughs> is a difficult relationship if you're away from your partner for two years and then you come back and expect it all to pick up where you left off and it didn't because I'd been you know I, the, we had changed uh, we'd gone in slightly different directions um, I'd been working with, you know, Mark King and Mark Bazicki yes, and, and, and all these great, fantastic musicians. And uh, and I was dabbling in that and thinking, this is this is a bit of fun. This is great. And then expecting to come back to Ultravox and run the two things on on, on tandem. And it doesn't work that way. You know, your 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 heart and your your feelings get pulled in, a, in the one direction. We ended up making one last album, which was so confused you know there's a track on there where we've got Ultravox and the Chieftains together which I loved <laughs> but we've also got a track with George Martin and an orchestra 
which yeah. is it's the kind of like opposing things uh, with brass sections and and I think I nicked it from you. We were using Beggar and Co and brass sections and and you think what the hell were we thinking? Hang we on, that, sounds like a solo. that sounds like a solo project. Uh, uh, no, it wasn't. It was a confused band. It was a band that weren't coherent, and that was because of the passage of time, not because any one of us really wanted to do you know, brass sections. It's just that it felt okay at the time. But we just ended up with a mishmash of an album and it just, the band just kind of imploded. You know, we, we asked we asked Warren to leave, uh, which was the start of it all. All of a sudden we had a three-legged table, which <laughs> as you well know, is very liable to fall over, which it did. Uh, and it was just easy. I just lost it one day and I just said, look, I, I've, I can't do this anymore. We've had six great years. Uh, you know, it's time to, for me to move on and do something else. And everybody else agreed. What inspired you to to work with Mark King? Because he's there's that's such a personality bass player who kind of because I remember I've been listening to the stuff you did with him, and uh, and of course my first thought is if you asked me to play on your record, you wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, probably not, <laughs> but I think I think it was that whole thing about um, expanding your horizons. You know, yeah. I wanted to hear the 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 slap rhythmic, you know, percussion bass. Um, but even even then, he played on "If I Was," which is the simplest bass part in the world. Boom, 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 boom. You know, that's it. But he played it beautifully. So I wanted I wanted his take on what he could do that I could never do if somebody put a gun to my head. Same with Mick Carn. You know, I wanted that. Yeah, that's another one. That, and his that, his work with you is beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah, it's fabulous. But you yeah. you had to change what you did to suit what Mick did because <laughs> Mick said he said I don't understand the notes. He said I put my fingers on the strings and I feel that's it. That's right. Yeah. And I think great. He said I don't want somebody to teach me it because I will end up changing how I work. So he he was like a sculptor. He made sculptures. So he worked with his fingers, skin, wire, and wood. And that's why you, you had that fretless wall, which made mm. that wonderful sound. So I wanted to have this other wealth of, of talents to kind of come in and bolster my little ideas. And why not? You know, it was great. And did you feel confident enough to be just mid-jure out there at first? Because as I, I, I think that's a big break. Here's a guy who's been in the Slick, the Rich Kids, Thin Lizzy, Ultravox. You're a band man. I am a band man, and it's it was very odd. Um, I think the first thing you do, especially after the Gift album, which had you know, if I was, it was just a combination of pop songs and instrumental music, which I've always loved. And I, I knocked it together in my studio. Nobody knew I was doing it, and and it spurned a big number one record. So therefore, the album became successful. The weird thing for me was exactly that was coming up with the next album, which was Answers to Nothing, where I got over serious. I was, you know, I was wanted to make a statement um, because all of a sudden you have to start seeing in interviews, I think, not we think, you know, I feel, ah. not we feel. All of a sudden it's you and everything rests on your shoulders. And sometimes the megalomaniac in you likes that. But other times the fragile, you know, I'm as good as my last record character in you just falls apart. So it's a real dilemma coming out of a constant band scenario where you've always got someone next to you who says I know what to do here and then they step in and do it you know and when that works it's great but when it doesn't work it's a nightmare because you, you, you end up you end up reducing your standards to suit someone else's uh, input and that's not a great thing. Do you know the worry I've got here now Gary sorry is is that this is also great everything you're saying is so great 
And if we carry on much longer as a one part, we're going to have to edit loads and we're going to lose yeah. all your great stuff. Yeah, I, I feel we, we it's always the same on this show, you know, that people have it feels like we're we're ignoring the last 20 years of a person's career because <laughs> we, we're interested in the beginning. We should work backwards. We should work backwards. Well, backwards. Well, the, thing is, the thing is, that bit is obvious because I'm still here. <laughs> and, you, and you really are still you really are still here i mean you know it, it's 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 almost you know national treasure time but you know your last album that you you, you made we were i was listening to i'm, I'm sure guys just been listening to as well um fragile I mean, there's some fantastic songs yeah. here. i mean any new band will be proud of that i i mean i particularly like i've i've survived which is exactly what we're talking about right now isn't it yeah, well, you know, it, songwriting is like a fine wine, I hope, and you you know this more than, than any. Um, you know, it's, it's something to be honed. You, you know, nobody's born a songwriter. You know, you, you learn the craft and hopefully you get better at it. And, and I care. That's the thing. You know, I care about what I do. I care about the output that I have. You know, not necessarily for me, but I think of my four daughters. When I'm gone, uh, I want them to be able to turn around and say in years to come, that was the best he could do at that moment in time. He didn't just fill it full of crap. He didn't just knock it off because it was contracted. He did it because he felt it. And that's all you can do. And if you carry on doing that, somewhere, someone on the planet will resonate to what you've just done and understand it. Wow. I can't think of a better way of ending. Manifesto. Um, beautiful. We, we need to have you back, Midge. Simple as that. What, to fill in the last? <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's an absolute delight and an honour. Uh, great fun. Thank you, chaps. Thank you. That was good. That was fantastic. And it was long, so we need to get out of your way because we want you to have as much of it as you can. So please subscribe. Thank you for listening and join us whenever you can. We'll be back here next week, though. And there's all the other stuff that we've already done. I think about 20-odd episodes now for you to listen to and enjoy. Pick your superstar. Uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from her. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.